And good morning. Welcome into In Focus here on News Radio KMAN. It is a Tuesday morning, fifth Tuesday of the month, which means usually we don't have any regular, uh, regularly scheduled guests on. So we are uh, pleased to be joined by some folks we don't have on as regularly. We have Crystal Pratt joining us here from Ascension via Christie. She is the director of emergency, the the emergency department and the forensics department there at the hospital. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And she's brought in a guest with her today, Kathy Ray. Executive Director of the Crisis Center Incorporated here in Manhattan. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us this morning. Absolutely. Going to uh, be talking here about uh, April. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and April begins on Friday. And uh, let's talk first about uh, why uh, why we why we bring this up here now with Sexual Assault uh, Awareness Month. I know this is a topic for both of you uh, that you're passionate about. Yeah, I think we're both, you can equally say that we're very big advocates for this. Um, And we really want to just start kind of having that conversation within the community and kind of erase some awareness. Um, And so we kind of partnered with together and some other community members to bring this great exhibit to us. And I'll let Kathy kind of talk about the exhibit a little bit and our what we're doing on Friday night that we're excited to share with you guys. Yes, yeah, so we are bringing the What Were You Wearing Survivor Art Exhibit to Manhattan. And this is an exhibit that was um, created by uh, Jen Brockman and uh, Dr. Mary Hybert out of the University of Arkansas. And this exhibit has uh, visited a number of college campuses around the United States and around the world and a number of communities. And so we are very excited to bring this to Manhattan to create awareness for uh, Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So we are uh, launching this exhibit on April 1st. We are having an opening reception at 5.30 at Colony Square. And then the exhibit will be on display open to the public April 4th through the 15th at Colony Square. So uh, we're very excited and hope everyone will come out and join us for that reception on Friday. So these are different items of clothing that actual victims wore then, is that right? Yes. So the um, exhibit is uh, is clothing, and it depicts what uh, victims and survivors were wearing at the time of their assault. And it does include a number of uh, different victims because we know sexual violence impacts people of all ages and genders. Um, so some are females, adult females, some are children, uh, some are males. And so these are the, the clothing items um, that they were wearing at the time of the assault. And these are stories that were submitted by actual victims and survivors of sexual assault and rape. Um, you know, the point of this exhibit, we live in this culture where victims are often blamed for their own assault. So um, why were you there? Why were you drinking? What were you wearing? And so this exhibit is really aimed at, um, you know, getting at that victim blaming, those myths around sexual assault and rape, because that just really uh, deflects blame from the offender. And victims of crime are never responsible for their own victimization. And I think it's important that that's why we kind of looped in so many different community partners, because um, we wanted to have someone representing each kind of entity that really supports this and wants to advocate for those survivors, including the RCPD. Um, we've got the Crisis Center Incorporated. We've got Ascension Via Christi, the emergency, de- uh, emergency department and forensic nursing department. Um, we've also got K-State Care Office is another big supporter that we have. Um Riley County Attorney's Office, MBI Incorporated, um, Hy-Vee and Ross are all just some people that have either, you know, donated or are sponsors within this event that we're planning to have. So we're very excited to keep having that collaboration together. 
So the uh, again, the opening receptions this Friday, five thirty to seven. That'll be at uh, Colony Square, five fifty-five points, and then. If you can't make it out Friday, the uh, it will be on display here for about two weeks. Yep, yeah. Very cool. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity here and, and so powerful, I think, and, and especially in a college town because, uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's statistics that support this or not, but I would imagine probably a little higher prevalence of sexual assaults in college towns. Absolutely. So um, the statistics tell us that uh, about one in five women and one in five, one in 71 men, excuse me, have been the victim of rape in their lifetime. And one in three women and one in six men have experienced sexual violence other uh, than rape at some point in their lives. So this is a very prevalent uh, crime that we may not always hear about. You know, this is something that there is a lot of um, self-blame, a lot of shame attached to being a victim or survivor of sexual assault and rape, especially for uh, men and boys. And so we also want to start some conversations in the community. We want victims and survivors to know that we support them. There are services available for them, but also start those conversations uh, just amongst the general public. Um, You know, this is an underreported crime again, because of that self-blame self, uh, and shame that's really attached to this. And so sometimes people don't tell anybody about their victimization. Um, and so not only are we creating awareness about the issues, um, we want people to know that there are services available. So each of the partners in this event will be present at the opening reception. We'll share a little bit about the services we have. Um, there'll be brochures and information available. So Again, just really hoping to start that conversation in the community. I always think it's heartbreaking uh, the amount of children who are uh, victims of sexual uh, abuse. And uh, I see about 91% of them know their abuser. And, mm-hmm. and I could see how it'd be hard to come forward. Absolutely. Yeah. I think sometimes, like, and we talk about that, stranger danger is kind of the more common thing that people think about. But statistically speaking, you do typically know who the abuser is. Um, And I think that when we're talking about creating that conversation, it also looks like what is consent? Well, you know, when I was growing up, we were always taught, don't wear this, don't do that, don't do that. We, We were taught for me as um, a woman not to do these things where my brothers didn't have any education for them. And so I think that we just want to change that narrative where we're kind of talking about overall as a whole, how can we do better and be better? Um, What is consent? How do we teach that? And it starts at an early age. So with I'm a mom of six boys and I talk to them about like, you know, if your brother asks you to stop, you have to respect his boundaries. He's created that boundary and make sure that you're respecting it because it starts young. So... Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation keeps statistics on uh, rape and and these types of crimes. And um, last year, one incident of rape was reported to Kansas law enforcement every seven hours, 56 minutes and five seconds. And over 80 percent of those were committed by someone that was known to the victim. Mm -hmm. Um, So as Crystal mentioned, we're often taught to protect ourselves uh, from the stranger when really uh, the biggest threat is someone someone we may know, whether that's um, an acquaintance, a coworker, a family member, a friend. Um, the majority of, of sexual assault is committed by someone known to the victim, mm-hmm. which then also makes it difficult to come forward. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, I'm, and as we get further along and more education out there to people, do you find that it's easier now for victims, especially younger victims, to come forward than it used to be? 
I mean, I think we're getting there. I think we have a long way to go. I think that kind of, especially with COVID, we've kind of seen where that may not necessarily show to be the truth um, because people, there's other pieces to that. Like people don't want to go to a hospital to have a, a kit collected. People don't want or know the cost of things like that. Um, so having a kit collected is covered by the county in which the sexual assault occurred. Um, so there's just little bits of pieces of information that people aren't aware of. And that's why we want to have that conversation. I know for us on the medical pieces, we want this to be so normal as if you broke your wrist, you go and get an x-ray. If you have a sexual assault, you should know the resources that are available to you to be able to have that taken care of. And it should be a normal conversation. Um, So that's our biggest goal is just to kind of change that narrative a little bit so people don't feel isolated after such a traumatic event has already happened where they feel like they have nowhere to go. Yeah. And I do think um, a lot has changed just in the time that I've been in this field. You know, um, I can remember a time when sexual assault wasn't talked about in the news and the media. And, you know, certainly the Me Too movement, um, I think everybody has heard of that. And, you know, those kinds of things where um, people said, Me Too, you know, I've been a victim of sexual assault that really um, encouraged other people to come forward. And I think it was overwhelming for a lot of people to see how many actual victims there are and, um, and, and then seeing the perpetrators behind this violence. And so that, that certainly shifted the narrative. And, you know, we now talk about it more in the news and media, um, normalizing the conversations about this happening and, and what we can do to prevent it and change the way we think about um, consent and and starting at young ages to teach those kinds of things is important. Yeah, we're speaking with Crystal Pratt and Kathy Ray here, Sexual Assault uh, Awareness Month, and uh, again, that what you were you wearing? Uh, opening reception this Friday, five three to seven at Colony Square. We're gonna step aside, take a break. We'll have some more uh, with both ladies here in a moment on News Radio KMAN. We're back here on In Focus News Radio KMAN. We're talking with uh, members of Ascension Via Christi and uh, the Crisis Center. We have uh, Kathy Ray and Crystal Pratt joining us here. Kathy, of course, Executive Director of the Crisis Center, and uh, Crystal, the Director of the Emergency Department and Forensics Department at the hospital. Uh, And we've been talking about Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which takes place in the month of April, and, you know, letting people know that there are resources available here in the community. And I know both of your entities do a lot here, uh, and so I'd like to give you guys kind of the platform to talk a little bit about that. Um, I guess we'll start with you, Crystal, uh, and kind of the services offered at the hospital uh, after somebody is a victim of sexual abuse. Um, so we worked really hard to kind of partner with RCPD and um, K-State PD to kind of bypass some things that we had previously set up. So typically, if they're responding to a call, they're trying to get in contact with us. And then we try to talk to um, their survivor or victim at the time, um, and then kind of talk to them about what the process looks like, because it can be a little longer process, but it's all very helpful. Lots of educations completed. Um, And then they come up to the hospital. We have a separate area away from the emergency department. It's a quiet area. um, And we kind of go through the kit collection process. Our job, there is a piece to it that is is collecting evidence, but there's also a piece to it that's that education and just letting them know about where their body is, what's kind of normal versus not normal, and kind of getting them back to speed on getting control. Um, We don't do anything in that kit collection process that they don't give us permission for. It's giving back that consent and that control to be able to tell us yes or no to things. So um, it is a little bit of a longer process, but it's based on what that person needs in that time. 
Um, and so we're pretty lucky that Ascension Via Christi has let us build that program and we're still working on building it up more too. So Great. Well, and the control is a big piece of it. I've, I've heard that in the last few years that I've been covering this and uh, and that didn't always used to be the case. Used, there's so many emotions that go through somebody who's just been a victim. Absolutely. And we try to be very trauma-informed and make sure that we are doing what's right for that person and not just what's right for necessarily the evidence piece or whatever the other aspect of that is. Because um, So we're kind of the blend between the medical and the um, legal side of things. So there, we're kind of a good mix of that. And we try to advocate for the patient in that sense. All right. Now, I know the crisis center is heavily involved as well, um, and we're probably getting folks uh, maybe don't have anywhere else to go. Yes. And um, so one of the things that the crisis center will do if, uh, let's say, they have a pa- the Ascension Via Christi has a patient um, who is receiving medical care and uh, completing the sexual assault exam process, uh, we will have an advocate come on site to really be that independent support for a victim. Um, we can answer questions about their rights. You know, as Crystal mentioned, um, the sexual assault medical forensic exam is not just medical care, but it's also evidence collection. And so a lot of times people will have questions about what happens to the evidence. Uh, what are their rights in terms of what evidence is collected? Um, do they have to report to law enforcement or not? So all of these different things that, that go into that. Um, so our advocates will be there by their side um, to provide that support, that trauma-informed support and information, because information really is uh, giving someone control back of Um, a a situation where they had no control. Um, So we'll do that. We also have hotlines, uh, 24-hour hotline services. So um, if someone needs our services or just needs to talk and process. So as I mentioned, sexual assault, um, there's a lot of of shame that goes along with that, um, especially for college students. You know, maybe they're a freshman at college and they don't want to disclose to their parents who maybe are already worried that they're off at college alone. Um, so we're really that independent resource for them. Um, if they need some place to go, we have safe shelter services and we can provide support and advocacy um, throughout the process. And all of our services are completely free and they're completely confidential. So. Um, We don't share information with our other partners. Um, We're able to really be that independent, supportive person and advocate on behalf of the victim. And I will say, too, the good thing about, like, I'm always a big fan of the advocacies that happens with the crisis center and even in the care office because our role as forensic nurses is it's big, but it's minimal. We are just right there right after. And what they can do is so such a long standing opportunity for them to help with that person. Um, so we are always a big, big, big fan of the crisis center and the care office that they can come in and help them because there are so many questions that come weeks, months, years later, that they can really help them along that process. And they're the experts in that. So we are a huge, huge fan of theirs. How how many cases do you guys see where the, the situation is involving somebody's just in a in an abusive relationship? Because uh, I know we all have kind of our our thoughts of what sexual violence looks like, and it can be very different mm-hmm. for everybody. 
I mean, we see a variety of things, to be honest. Um, we tried to start building up where we also were responding outside of sexual assaults, also to responding to interpersonal violence, domestic violence, and things like that, because we do have that big need in the community. Um, and some of those aren't going to law enforcement. They're coming in just to our ED, and we're, you know, we're finding those for other reasons. So we try to make sure that they know that there's resources. Again, the Crisis Center, huge fan of theirs. We try to connect them with that. Um, sometimes... Our job is just knowing to plant the seed and knowing just to let them be where they're ready to be. Because if someone's not ready to get away from some of those situations, you can't make them. And that's why the crisis center is so phenomenal, because they can be that support when they're needed the most. And we do see a huge overlap between uh, domestic violence and sexual assault. So uh, victims of abuse often experience sexual violence in that in that relationship. Um, again, may not be something we hear about um, as much, but it, it certainly is happening. And so a lot of times we will be serving um, someone who is experiencing both abuse in their relationship and has also been sexually assaulted by that same partner. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's, there's so many avenues for uh, people to become a victim here. We have our phones, which are a 24-hour source of access to everything. And I imagine you probably see these days more um, online harassment uh, coming coming about, especially with younger folks. Absolutely. And I think that's something that like I know we've talked about with the CAC wanting to eventually kind of partner with and getting into the school systems and really start that conversation with the younger crowd and kind of talk to them about the dangers of having that Internet in so many variety of ways. You've got the bullying. You've got that open door to potential human trafficking, um, predators online that are posing as younger people. I mean, it is just Pandora's box, really. I mean, it is a blessing and a curse because we all love our phones. But there are some downsides to that. So I think just going back to starting that conversation and talking about preventative stuff is always going to be our best options to try to offset some of these things that are happening on the downside. And I think it's important to talk about how to use these things safely, right? Mm -hmm. How to use um, the internet and phones and social media and access to information in a safe way. Um, Sometimes our knee-jerk reaction might be to take those things away, Mm -hmm. but, you know, um, abusers and offenders and perpetrators, these are not new tactics. They're just new tools that they're using. And so as our technology progresses, um, those things aren't going away. So we have to have conversations about um, the realities of of how people will manipulate the internet and social media uh, to perpetrate violence and abuse. And so um, how do we do that in a safe way um, is, is really important. Absolutely. I might, uh, you know, just in case someone's he- hearing this for the first time and maybe they're a victim, what is uh, a good phone number to get a hold of you guys at each of your locations? Um, so our forensic nursing department, I'll, I'll plug two numbers. Our forensic nursing department number is 785-323-6880, but that doesn't always have someone there. Um, so another just number to our operator, and you can ask to go to the emergency department, um, is 785-776-3322. And so they can always connect to you with me. And like I said, I've shared my number with RCPD, K-State PD. I've blessed my number to a lot of people so that they're able to get a hold of us if they have questions and they need to connect us with someone too. 
In the crisis center, we have a 24-hour live answer crisis hotline. So any time of, of day, uh, someone can reach us. Our The crisis center's um, hotline number is 1-800-727-2785. Um, so again, that's 1-800-727-2785. Or they can visit us at www. Um, dot the crisis center inc dot org and our website has all of our contact information and hotline information their website's very nice yeah and and, <laughs> and forgive me I, I i know that you're in the process of a new shelter there at the crisis yes, shelter yes yes yeah. we are in the process of um of of a new shelter and we hope to have that project completed this summer um, so that was um, a big project that started back in 2016 under the prior executive director Judy Davis and so um, I'm excited to work with the team and our board of directors and and the community to, to finish uh, that project and we're very excited about our new facility so it, it'll better meet the, the needs of the community um, and victims and survivors and children who stay there so bigger space oh absolutely okay yes fabulous <laughs> well glad to hear that and uh we'll, we'll we'll have to get in touch with you here in the next few months That'd be and great yes. find out more i love talking about it so <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you and again remind people friday is the opening reception for the what were you wearing survivor art exhibit 5 30 to 7 light refreshments will be served and that's at colony square 555 points exhibit on display april 4th through the 15th from 7.30 to 6, Monday through Friday. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Stay tuned. We're going to hear from Carla Hagemeister up next from the Flint Hills Bread Basket. Stay tuned. We are back here on In Focus, News Radio KMAN. And our next segment will feature the Flint Hills Bread Basket and a very familiar face stopping by the studio. The new executive director there, Carla Hagemeister, joins us in the studio. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here. Yeah, you wear a lot of hats here in our community. Sometimes it feels like that, yes. <laughs> well, it's good to have you on, and I appreciate you coming on here. We haven't really gotten to have you on in this capacity yet with the Bread Basket, but... Um, you took over here, uh, what, about a month ago? Is that about right? I'm starting my um, fourth week, so I started on March 7th. So, oh. yes, I'm just about a month in. Well, I I knew we were coming up on finding a new director here for the Flint Hills Bread Basket. Uh, and when they announced your name, I was a little surprised because you've worked so long in the uh, Riley County Attorney's Office. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess kind of what, what made you decide to change career paths? Oh, goodness. That's a good question. Um, I would say that twenty. I was at the county attorney's office for 22 and a half years. Um, my background is in social work. My background is in helping people and working with folks in the community. That was my day job. But then also on the side, um, I was involved in a lot of different organizations that were also directed towards helping people throughout my entire time living here. And so... It was kind of a natural outspring of where I'd been. I think many of us are kind of reaching those stages in our lives where we look at where we've been and where we want to go. And um, I have a real great appreciation for the time that I spent at the county attorney's office, the relationships that I developed with people there internally and externally. Um, Definitely made a lot of really lasting relationships with people in our community and I hope helped um, a good number of people um, going through some really hard times in their lives. But it was an opportunity for me to do something different and stretch myself in a different way. 
and kind of take a different leadership role in the community and just have another way to give back and learn more and do more and just have a different different direction to continue in some ways the same type of work. Yeah, it, there is a lot of tie-ins. I, I, can, I can see how that would work. We've had Bill Kennedy on here before, and I know he uh, is a former attorney here in, in Riley County, and he always talks about how he could see hunger when he was working in, in that job and then got heavily involved with the Flint Hills Breadbasket. Yes, he did. So Bill was the county attorney at the time that I was hired, so he was the first attorney that I worked for, and um, he has been involved in work with the Breadbasket for uh, many years through the Super Bowl, um, the Knights of Columbus and St. Thomas More Church and their activities with supporting raising food and funds for the um, Flint Hills Breadbasket to address food insecurity in our community. Um, so he's a champion. If you know Bill, you know that he's a champion for the things that he's passionate about. So he is a very convincing person. Um, he's definitely was the person who convinced me to get on a bicycle and ride 100 miles with him one year mm. in the MS-150. He convinced me once. He didn't convince me a second time. But I've certainly continued to send him a check every year that he has hit me up for it. Um, and then, again, his passion for the breadbasket and his passion for people is something that I really have always connected with. So he is a dear, a dear person and a dear friend. Very good. Well, and you've been on the school board as well. I know um, hunger is uh, seen a lot here in the schools as well. So this uh, it seems like a natural fit to have you here. It is, and it's interesting um, to see how many different ways, like you said at the beginning, it's a different hat. And sometimes I have to really stop and concentrate about which hat am I wearing. Am I wearing a mom hat, a school board hat, a um, church member hat, a breadbasket hat now? Um, what, am, what am I wearing and who am I representing and how do I make sure that those things stay um, in the proper balance with each other? But it's also been really informative and helpful for me to understand um, a little bit more about what's happening on the ground in our schools, to have a real understanding that the change to the federal support for our school breakfast and lunch programs, you know, during COVID, where every kid had free lunch and breakfast, and we didn't have to do the paperwork. We didn't have to do all of that um, administrative end of things really helped us serve kids. It made it so that families and kids didn't have to worry about that. And it also made it so that during a time of really short labor, when our food, our child nutrition department was really strapped for people, it simplified their job. And we're moving back into a time because those, um, changes are expiring, we're moving back into a time where it's going to be harder again for um, programs that help kids and help families address food insecurity are going to have to move back into some older ways or some different ways again. And honestly, what we expect to happen, unfortunately, is that there will probably be more kids and families who are facing food insecurity. So some of the things that have um, change during COVID, I don't think we can say are going to go back because I don't know that we know what that looks like anymore. I think that that has changed the fabric permanently. But I also don't think that, that 2022 is going to be a repeat of 2021. I think that we are just going to have to really be flexible 
ready to pivot, ready to see what the needs are in our community and ask our community to step up and help. Well, and and yeah, I, I could see that happening, especially uh, given the price on everything going up. And I, I know that people are hurting out there as far as, you know, wages not keeping up with inflation and and having to feed mouths in your family. I mean, it, there's probably a lot of need out there right now. And um, bridging that gap is probably a big goal of yours. Absolutely. I think that it's um, maybe a misunderstanding or a misconception that people who are facing food insecurity are not working or are choosing not to work. Um, I think there's a whole lot of complicating factors that come into that situation. Many of our families are working, but do their wages pay sufficient? Um, do they pay to support rent and childcare and having an operating vehicle and having gas to put in that vehicle? and paying the utility bills and what money is left over for food at the end of that time period. Um, those, those are realities for many of our families. And so it's not necessarily um, a situation where, where people don't want to work or aren't working. I think that a vast majority of the folks in our community are working um, and for many of them, if they're not working, there's reasons why they're not, whether it's a physical disability, um, age being a limiting factor, uh, mental health, all of those components can really compile in and compound for a person to make um, a sustainable living a challenge for them. And so I want the breadbasket to be a place that we um, just greet people in and welcome them and help them address what that need is. And I know there's some parameters you have to work within um, with, through this organization. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit, kind of who, who is the breadbasket available to serve here in the community? Mm -hmm. The breadbasket traditionally is available to serve the Manhattan community. So we are primarily limited to folks that live within the city limits or within Manhattan. Now, if we had somebody from Ogden, Junction City, Geary County of some sort, St. George, show up today and say, I don't have enough food for my family today, we're going to help that person. We're going to help them uh, with that immediate need, make sure that they have food for the day, and then we're going to connect them with the food resources within their more immediate community. And that has happened in the time that I've been at the breadbasket. Um, you know, you take a phone call and somebody says, I need food. Are you open? And you say, yeah, come on down. And then once you really start to talk with that person, you realize, oh, you're actually from a ge different geographic area, but you're here and you need something right now. So we're going to meet that need. And then we're going to connect you with the resources that are connected to your own community. Okay. As far as uh, the needs at the breadbasket at the moment, do you guys have any food needs that we could help maybe uh, um, get sure. the word out to people? So I think that the there's always a food need. There's always going to be a food need. I think one of the areas that I hope to focus on is presenting more opportunities for nutritious foods, fresh foods, um, produce, meats, things like that that um, are harder to come by when it comes down to what people are making donations of. We do have the capacity. We have um, great capacity for refrigerated food and frozen food in regards to being able to keep meat and produce safe. 
And so those are definitely things that I want us to be able to focus on um, is making sure that we have access, that we have the ability to offer food to our guests that are healthy foods. Um, We want the same variety that you would get at the grocery store. I want people to be able to make choices that are fitting with their dietary needs, possibly with their cultural, religious needs, and also with um, their preferences. And so I want to, to make sure that we're offering healthy choices. And so that's a direction that I would really like us to move towards. Um, it's, it's also just, again, you, you think about what, what foods sit in your cabinet and what foods move through your kitchen. And um, so we have, um, in some ways, we have an abundance of beans right now. We have an abundance of especially like dried beans that take longer for people to prepare. Um, So it's striking that proper balance between those healthy, nutritious foods, but also foods that people know how to prepare and that their family likes to eat. So we want to to find the right balance in all of those things and make sure that we're offering a good, balanced variety of foods for people. That's good. And, you know, having having those foods is probably also good to have some recipes. And I know that there's some tools out there online. The Food and Farm Council has some good opportunities for that as well. They do. And I had a nice visit with um, Vicki James last week from the Food and Farm Council. And that's something that I'm really enjoying so far is, um, again, it's different hats and it's a lot of familiar names, but seeing them in different capacities. And then also some names that maybe I've seen come across my email or through my world in different reports or different information pieces that I've gotten through one of my roles, but not necessarily had the personal connection with because my previous work didn't didn't dive so deeply into the issue of food insecurity. And so it's really nice right now to be coming across people who, hey, I've seen your name a lot of times over the years, or they've seen my name a lot of times over the years, but we've never had the opportunity to work together. And so it's been kind of fun to make those connections with people. Yeah. You know, we had the the folks on earlier here talking about sexual assault awareness, and, and now, now we're talking food insecurity. There's a, a perception people have, and, and we, we touched on this a little bit here, but it, it's not always what you think it, it looks like, and you, especially food insecurity, um, because as you mentioned, it's not just people who aren't working. It's not people who are, uh, can't work or or maybe sometimes it is, but, uh, you know, everybody's situation is unique. Absolutely. I think that the thing to remember, a thing to remember is that for many people in the United States, um, food insecurity or income insecurity is not very far away from them. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I can't pull the number right now, but the, the fact around how many people are only one emergency away from food insecurity or losing their home or, um, you know, it's, it's one car repair, it's one loss of a job. It doesn't take a whole lot for people to move from a place where they feel pretty safe and stable to a place where those things aren't necessarily available to them. And so that is a reality for many families where it just takes that one thing to go wrong and it puts them out of balance. And then once you're out of balance, it isn't just a matter of plugging that one hole. Um, we definitely saw that um, during COVID with, with the school district. Um, you know, once one thing tips off, it can really set in motion a, 
uh, domino effect for other ramifications. And riding the riding the course on one thing, you still have to come back around and address all those other issues that that happen as a result. So it's it's pretty tough for families, and it's something for us to remember. All right. Well, Carla, is, did you have something, Nick? I did, actually. I okay. was As you were talking about this, you got me thinking about um, transportation as well and how that plays into food insecurity. It's a huge part of what leads people to be food insecure. Uh, just take for imagine, if you get off of work at 7 p.m., you work eight-hour day, maybe even 12 hours if you work two jobs perhaps in a day, and you get home 7 p.m., you've been working all day, you don't have a car. How do you get to the grocery store when you're, you know, you had a long day, you're tired, you're exhausted, maybe you have kids at home, that plays a huge role in your ability to access food. Even if you have maybe the means or the monetary capability to go get it, you have no physical way to go get there um, in some cases. Absolutely. We definitely um, think about that. We're fortunate to have an ATA stop near us at the breadbasket. But again, that limits if you're taking public transportation. Um, you're limited to what you can carry. You don't have your trunk. You don't get to go do the big shop at um, the grocery store the way that, that some of us might be able to. And so transportation is definitely a compounding factor for families. A family with one vehicle where we're all sharing it or one vehicle amongst a larger group of a family that um, you know one person is taking this person to work and then getting to the next place and getting to the next place. And I definitely think that something that, um, that I saw within my time at the county attorney's office is that um, folks who are um, sometimes in less secure situations are incredibly generous with each other. And the number of times that you had a friend driving you from one place to another um, was very common. And I think there's something to remember, but it's also, um, it's that sense of community and helping for each other that, that, that I think crosses boundaries and is a strength for that community that in many ways there were times where, um, you know, I would reflect and say, man, I don't know if I'd loan my my best friend my car for a week. <laughs> and um, that happens, though. And so there's definitely different strengths and different ways that people work together in order to get their needs met. But that in mind, we have to remember that there are certainly barriers that people who are facing food insecurity are facing and it is not as simple as um, simply providing food. There's oftentimes many other compounding factors that go into what's happening in that situation. All right. Well, do you have any uh, upcoming events that you'd like us to know about here? Absolutely. I would love to remind the community or share with the community that on May 2nd, we have the 27th annual Flint Hills Breadbasket Take a Swing at Hunger Golf Tournament. It'll be held this year at the Colbert Hills Golf Club, and I have the information about that posted on our Facebook page and our website, and we are certainly looking for more teams and more whole sponsors in order to help us have a successful event. Awesome. All right. We'll look forward to that, and we'll be uh, touching base with you, I'm sure, throughout the year. And... uh, in this capacity and with the school board as well. So Carla, appreciate you coming out and sharing some information. I love it. I think I'm actually going to be back next week wearing my school board hat. And thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Okay. We'll look forward to it. Carla Hagemeister, again, Executive Director of the Flint Hills Breadbasket, joining us on In Focus. More straight ahead. We're back here on In Focus, News Radio KMAN. 
And uh, thanks to all of our guests here joining us. Had some good conversations. If you missed any of it, it'll be up shortly at newsradiokman.com. We had Crystal Pratt from Essential Via Christi and Kathy Ray from the Crisis Center talking about Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And then Carla Hagemeister from the Flint Hills Bread Basket, the new director there, uh, talking about uh, food insecurity and uh, some upcoming events. The Take a Swing at Hunger event golf tournament, again, May 2nd at Colbert Hills Golf Club. We'll be uh, sure to pass along some more information online about that later. Uh, the rest of this week's in focus. Uh, here's the lineup tomorrow. Uh, it's a fifth Wednesday, so we'll have Geary County Superintendent Reginald Eggleston joining us uh, at the beginning. We're going to also hear from Todd Holmberg at McCain Auditorium and uh, Linda Duke from the Beach Museum about some events they've got going on. Thursday, we are scheduled to have Ben Jedlica from the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. And then we'll also have Brian McNulty from uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He's the Operation Project Manager, talking about uh, what's going on up there with Tuttle Creek Lake. Uh, Karen Hibbard, scheduled for Friday, along with uh, K-State Research and Extension. Not sure who we'll have on the program then. And Riley Mayor Tim Sharp is also going to join us at 9.30 on Friday. Fantastic lineup. And always great to have the Riley folks come down. Uh, uh, I, I always enjoy getting to talk to Tim a little bit, but you'll be the one doing the talking this round. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit earlier regarding um, uploading this to newsradiokman.com. We're also changing things up a little bit in regards to the podcast format and how we present that. That's right. Uh, we've set up a new SoundCloud account. So that any of you that are familiar with SoundCloud, if you uh, access the game podcast, you'll see it's got a similar thing. And uh, what, that, what that's going to do is it's actually going to let you have a few different avenues to uh, listen back. You can listen on our website. But you can also get the podcast anywhere you get podcasts. So if you go into your Apple Podcasts and uh, want to listen to an In Focus interview from last Tuesday, you've got that opportunity. So, or at least you will have that opportunity. Yeah, as we, as we begin to populate it, you yeah. keep in mind we got we haven't back backfilled or anything. Right. So maybe not last Tuesday, but next Tuesday you could think about last Tuesday. Exactly. Um, and it'll be really handy. It's handy on our end because you know just showing you a little bit about how the sausage is made here. Uh, SoundCloud is really nifty in that it allows us to upload it to SoundCloud and it sends us sends it out to those other platforms. So it's kind of like a one-stop shop for us. Maybe not for those who consume the podcast, but it makes it really, you know, convenient for us to to distribute it. And it's I think SoundCloud is very user-friendly if you're listening on your mobile device. So uh, that's going to be a plus, maybe a little easier to read than, you know, or listen back than, than the previous ways. So perhaps, perhaps depending on, and there's also an app out there um, and all of these different platforms, whatever, however you get your podcast, uh, the app will probably work with this. It should, it should work. And if it doesn't, please let us know as, yeah. we're, as we're trying out the system. If there's anything going, you know, awry, send us an email and we'll, we'll give a look, we'll give it a look and we'll troubleshoot it a little bit. So. Absolutely. And just looking forward to it. a lot, a lot of good stuff going on in the community right now. And, uh, even this week, I think there's a, the Doug Barrett thing. Um, oh, on going on Thursday. at the Beach Museum? Yeah, Thursday. We've got Kelsey Bigelow. She's going to go out and cover that for us. And I, I'm really interested. I need to go out and see that uh, exhibit. I have not done that yet. I don't get out a whole lot beyond uh, work <laughs> matters, so to be honest. But So I have not been there. I have seen the photos online. I've done some of the virtual tours and the things like that. Um, but I haven't been able to get there. I have met Doug a few times. He is a great guy. He's a fun guy. Um and he's really nice. And if you just look at his work, he clearly has a strong talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. I've seen some of the, the virtual stuff, and it is good. 
And I mean, you got to be a little bit good to get yourself in a, a Time magazine, as no, he did. No doubt. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, talking about some other events going on, there's something interesting going on tomorrow in Junction City. They're partnering with uh, Petco Love to you know, provide some free vaccinations for your pets. That's going on tomorrow in Junction City from 4 to 6. This is going to be a free event. They want to uh, vaccinate three different pets through this effort. Give it a look. All right. Sounds good. And as always, get to this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. News Radio KMAN.